Did the court get it right on Title 42? Is football too violent? Plus, Kevin McCarthy on the brink. We'll discuss all this and more. On this edition of The Editors, I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the sage of authenticity, Woods Jim Garrity, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Express VPN. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, Happy New Year. We're recording here at 10.28 a.m. on Tuesday. Kevin McCarthy was supposed to have a closed-door meeting at 9.30 with various uh, opponents of his speaker bid. It's hard to tell how this is going to play out. I think the, the first ballot is scheduled to take place at noon. The Some reporting says the McCarthy team expects not to win on the first ballot and then grind it out all day in repeated votes. Not sure how that's going to work out because usually in leadership races, if you don't get over the top and you're the front runner, uh, immediately you, you lose ground rather than gaining it. But since we don't know much about what's going to happen uh, today and some people may listen to it, uh, after you know tomorrow or subsequently, we're just going to go really general. Your representative, Jim Garrity from Authenticity Woods, do you vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker? Yes or no? Sure. Yes, absolutely. Not because I love Kevin McCarthy, not because I think he's done a fabulous job in leadership. I think you can, there are a lot of bones to pick. Uh, from everything from what some would say an unctuous and excessive loyalty to President Trump to his general uh, you know, charisma and ability as a speaker. On the other hand, he is very much a known quantity. And I would recognize that back in November, the House Republicans you know, had their, their choice and McCarthy won that vote 188 to 31 up against Andy Biggs of Arizona, which was effectively just a protest challenge. So 85% or a little bit more than 85% of House Republicans are unified behind this guy. He made the case in the meeting today, he's earned this job. Now, as last, you know, as we're recording the reports of this meeting is getting pretty contentious. But if there were a strong alternative option who openly wanted the job, I might be interested in looking at those options, but those options don't exist. Hot rumor is that Steve Scalise, who wants to be House Majority Leader, at least publicly, is, a, is willing to be a consensus choice if he effectively has the job thrust upon him. Now, that's an intriguing option, but at this point, Steve Scalise doesn't want to be Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy does, and there's nobody else. You're not going to get Jim Jordan. You're not going to get Elise Stefanik. You're not going to get any of these other options. The realistic option is Kevin McCarthy. You know, go for it. See how it works out. I'd be, I'd be fine with that. I, I get why this matters to McCarthy. I get why this matters to a couple other House Republicans. I don't really get why this matters that much to the average Republican or the average conservative because mm -hmm. it's not like the agendas between McCarthy and Scalise right. are going to differ that much. So this yeah, really even, doesn't even if they differ, they, they couldn't pass them. You know, it, it, even yeah. if they have wildly divergent, you know, Henry Clay could be Speaker of the House and all that's going to happen is investigations and one or two big spending fights. MBD, are you yay or nay on Speaker McCarthy? I mean... I'm tempted to cast a vote for George Santos because he can be whoever you want him to be. <laughs> bench. Um, but no, I mean, I guess I'd vote. I, I would vote for McCarthy for just the pure known quantity. And I don't know who else wants to do the job and, and don't see anyone on the horizon uh, who has the requisite relationships with this. Um, with this GOP caucus to get it done. Should so, yeah. Yes. McCarthy is an unimpressive amoral nobody, and as such, he's perfectly qualified to be Speaker of the House. Uh, I don't mean that sardonically. <laughs> I mean that seriously. The whole point of these leadership roles is to corral a group of unruly legislators to sit in the middle, to remain agnostic on many important questions to accommodate those who are moderate and those who are committed to accommodate those who operate in safe districts and those who operate in swing districts. 
the notion that Republicans need someone who is more sound is false. The same votes will exist in the House. So the question has to be, as opposed to what? So let's suppose that this little temper tantrum is indulged and someone else ends up as speaker. Not Scalise, let's say it's Jim Jordan. Republicans don't have any more votes in the House. The margin is the same. The political imperatives and incentives are the same. I think it it is obvious that this is a complaint about something else. Not just many of the complaints that are leveled at Mitch McConnell are. The upset is with the political status quo, not with Kevin McCarthy. And I think that will become obvious. So I would vote for him for all the reasons that have been stated. I mean, he's, he's, um, he hasn't done anything wrong. He got them over the top. Yes, it was disappointing, but Kevin McCarthy is not the main reason for the disappointment in the midterms. And they're not good alternatives. And as Jim was pointing out, it's the broad will of the conference that he be there, be their leader. But I'm not sure he's going to get there. And if he doesn't get there, I don't think it's a disaster. And Newt Gingrich was on Fox yesterday saying that the fate of conservatism rests on on whether McCarthy becomes speaker or not, which just strikes me as totally ridiculous. It, it's, it'll be kind of an embarrassing spectacle if he goes down. Then they're going to settle on another Republican, probably Scalise. And things things will, you know, the sun will rise in the morning and, and things will go on. And as uh, I think everyone agrees, pretty much what House Republicans are going to be able to do is kind of baked in the cake one way or the other. With that, let's go to our sponsor this episode, Express VPN, and its biggest advocate on this program, Charlie Cook, for the read. Indeed, Express VPN, which I use myself and have on all the devices in my house because there are so many things not to like about today's tech giants, profiling, surveillance, data harvesting. What can you actually do about it when you rely on so many of their products as we do? We don't all have $44 billion to go buying up Twitter, alas. Well, the good news is that you don't need to be a billionaire to fight back for less than $7 per month. You can join me and take a stand against big tech by using Express. VPN. Now, many of these big tech companies, they make all their money by tracking. They track your searches, they track your video history, they track everything you click on, then they sell your personal data. You'll find many ISPs do this as well. But with ExpressVPN, they can't. ExpressVPN helps you to anonymize much of your online presence, and it does it by hiding your IP address. Essentially, you relay all of your traffic via ExpressVPN, which gives you uh, an IP address that changes and that is shared by others. Uh, An IP address, if you don't know, is a unique identifier that every device has. And over time, it allows big tech companies to match your activity back to you. With ExpressVPN on all your devices, they just can't do that. And the best part is ExpressVPN is really easy to use. In fact, once you've got it installed on your iPad, your iPhone, your computer, or what you will, you just tap one button to turn it on, and that's all it takes. So you want to sign up for ExpressVPN? All you need to do is visit expressvpn.com slash editors. And if you do that right now, you will get three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's at expressvpn.com slash editors, expressvpn.com slash editors. Thanks, Charlie. So, Jim Garrity, we talk a lot about football on this podcast and other sports, but you know, t- towards the end when we're, we're talking about things we've in- been interested in or in- enjoyed or not, if you're a Jets fan especially or a Titans fan lately, but uh, we're going to talk about football in one of our formal segments here because a, uh, a horrifying event Last night, Monday Night Football, DeMar Hamlin, a safety for the Bills, um, tackles a receiver for the uh, Bengals. You know, it, it was it was a he received a big hit in the course of of making this tackle, knocked you know back a, a yard or two. But if he had 
uh, stood up the way he did. He popped right back up and walked to the huddle. No one would have thought that play was the least bit remarkable. Instead, he collapses. And immediately, everyone knows that this is not your average football injury. He uh, had cardiac arrest. Thank God, you know, medical personnel, they um, train for this sort of uh, um, eventuality. They run out, they perform CPR, they restore his heartbeat. He is, is driven to the, the, the hospital and he's now in critical condition as we are recording. What do you make of it? Yeah. Look, you could see it in the eyes of the players that this was not just another injury. If you watch a lot of NFL, you're used to, you're unfortunately familiar with uh, a guy, you know, helmet to helmet contact. And you're like, oh, you know, that's a concussion. Um, a guy rolls, one lineman rolls up on the back of another guy or like, uh, you know, or you see a non-contact injury. And usually those are, you know, ACLs or MCLs like, ah, knee injury. He's going to be out for the year. This was odd because he was involved in the tackle. It was, it would, I, I would say kind of a routine one. It was, it was a hard pop. It was, you know, but not, there's nothing dirty about the play. There was nothing, mm-hmm. you know, intentional, no penalty called, uh, just a relatively, you know, hard impact of one guy running hard and another guy running in the other direction in a collision. And what happened was the shoulder of the uh, Cincinnati Bengals receiver uh, rammed into DeMar Hamlin's chest. And we don't know, we have not had a diagnosis beyond cardiac arrest, but many people are pointing to a phenomenon called, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, commotio cordis. Basically, this is when you have a chest, you know, something impacts your chest right above the heart and it is unfortunately right at a part of the heartbeat process that makes it particularly vulnerable and disrupts the heart's uh, regular cardiac activity. This is most commonly found in little leaguers when they get a, a baseball to the chest. Uh, in the past, it had been very seriously and likely fatal. As people became more aware of it, the uh, application of CPR and, uh, and, and things like that can uh, increase chances of survival. Uh, as of this recording, he's still in critical condition. The fact that he made it through the night is a good sign, and I think they'll he'll probably be under observation for probably very well a week. Um, you know, it's very rare to see this in adults, and it's very rare to see this in a uh, you know professional athlete who is gen- they're generally they're in excellent shape. But uh, this at this point, this appears to be I don't want to say a million to one shot, but just an extraordinarily unfortunate set of circumstances of uh, Hamlin getting hit in the wrong place at the wrong, at the exact wrong moment uh, of his heartbeat. Um, So hopefully everybody's, the other observation I had, uh, you know, tune over, tune in to watch the game. As soon as I saw the, you know, the alert on the phone um, game was stopped. It was not finished. My suspicion is, is that the Bengals and bills will play one last game than everybody else this year. I I don't think you'll have time playoffs start in two weeks. Uh, There's one more week left in the season. It's just going to, be unfinished. And I think, you know, almost immediately everybody in that stadium could tell um, this was not a normal injury and these were not normal circumstances. So Charlie, what, if anything, does this tell us about football? Football's had a concussion problem. They're uh, taking it more seriously now than they had in the past. And obviously a violent game where, you know, every 10 minutes or so, someone's hurt on the the field as you go into the, the commercial break, usually uh, leg leg injuries and usually you know the guys guys limp off but th- this is just a, a freakish play i mean this is this hasn't happened in the nfl uh, ever before and it's impossible to come up with any uh, protocol or rule chains or, or anything that would deal with something like this because as we were just just talking about it it in many respects it's just a routine play where hamlin just get gets hit in the, the worst uh, possible spot in the worst possible time and sustains this this freakish traumatic injury that endangered his life i think this tells us almost nothing i think it tells us almost nothing about the nfl and i think it tells us almost nothing about the vaccine which is the other topic that has been introduced inappropriately this is a terrible terrible incident sometimes in life and in sports we see terrible terrible incidents as you say this has never happened before in the NFL, this is not of a piece with, say, concussions or CTE or even broken legs. This is a first. One could reasonably argue that given the number of people who play football at the college and professional level, 
And given the number of games that have taken place over the last 50 to 100 years, at some point this was going to happen. I don't think that is an unreasonable proposition. This has happened, albeit perhaps in slightly different circumstances, in other sports. In basketball, Hank Gathers died in the late 80s, was it 1990? We've seen soccer players collapse. As recently as 2021, Christian Eriksen, who plays for Manchester United, collapsed during the European Championships and nearly died on the field. Ten years earlier, a player named Fabrice Moramba had a cardiac arrest during a Premier League game, collapsed on the field, and was legally dead for 72 minutes. Thankfully, he survived. We did not see anything here that indicts anything other than the fates and the gods. This was not a particularly big hit for the NFL. It would have been a big hit in soccer. It would have been a big hit in baseball. It would have been a big hit for me. But relative to other hits within the NFL, this seemed somewhat routine. And whether it's commercial cordis or not, I think we can therefore discount both the rules and the COVID-19 vaccine as the culprit. So, so did Charlie Kirk start the, the vaccine thing? Well, he did, and Alex Berenson did. I expect we're going to see extrapolations here on both sides that are not supported by the facts. I think that the Robert Kennedys and Alex Berenson's and Charlie Kirk's and others are going to say that this is the vaccine. And then I think we're going to see the contingent within American life that dislikes football and considers it to be grotesque and capitalistic and gladiatorial uh, say that this shows why football needs to be regulated or banned or phased out or replaced by flag football. And I think that it is important to point out over and over again that the facts as we know them simply do not support that. So not, not there's anything wrong with flag football, Jim, as we all know, that's, that's a great, great version of this American game. But so, so Charlie, I saw the Kirk tweet, you know, Oh, athletes, you know, fall collapsing uh, for no, for no reason, something we see all the time now. Is is that true? I can't think of any, (laughs) what's the instances, possible instances he's thinking of. Uh, the last person who collapsed, as I said, was Christian Eriksen, who collapsed in 2021. But the Moamba case was in 2011. The Hank Gathers case was in, I think, 1990. Uh, I believe in the early 70s, an umpire collapsed during a baseball game and died during the seventh inning. I mean, unfortunately, human beings are fallible. And this mm-hmm. does happen from time to time. And we ought to avoid non-sequiturs, that football has an injury problem in general does not mean this needs to be pulled into mm-hmm. it. Right. So, so MBD, uh, moral question for, for you on this. So should we feel any guilt about watching football? I, I find it, especially when watching college games and, and these guys, you know, it, it happens frequently. These guys are writhing on, on the ground. Like, uh, you know, they're doing this because I'm watching, you know, for my entertainment, they're, they're doing this. On the other hand, I mean, they're, they're few um, uh, higher status uh, um, positions in in American life than than being an NFL player. Yeah, I don't think guilt, I don't don't think we should feel guilty necessarily. I mean, there are other ways to structure sports, you know, but I think they're mostly prudential questions, right? Like you could have, um, you know, amateur sports that attract a lot of attention. We have that with the Olympics to some degree. Um, and I don't know why that would be morally superior or inferior to professional sports. So I, I don't think so. I mean, the, these college athletes, they want to be out there. Um, mm-hmm. They they want, and I don't think we should, I, I actually think it's morally impoverishing if we say the only reason to do things that are risky is for a, a minimum wage set by mm-hmm. a powerful <coughs> athletes union, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I'm still for 
people pursuing goals that are just, you know, glory or greatness or excellence mm-hmm. uh, uh, for their own sake and for us enjoying their pursuit of those goals. Um, I think it's fine. I mean, I, I basically agree with Charlie. Um, you know, I actually think of like Reggie Lewis in the, in the 1990s, I think died on a basketball court for the Celtics. Uh, it was sudden and awful. He had a heart problem that they didn't know about it. Um, you know, there may be, there may be other explanations that are far more likely than the conspiratorial ones could be anything from commodio cordis to drugs to steroid abuse, um, can, can cause heart problems. I don't know if any of those things would be suspected, but those are all far more likely than, um, the COVID-19 vaccine, which, you know, People have been, uh, I think people that of the populist bent like Charlie Kirk, they follow hundreds, maybe even thousands of accounts that over the last two years have kind of spread rumors and clips from Europe or South America of athletes uh, falling on a field. Some of them (laughs) not from any kind of heart issue at all, but claiming to be. Uh, related to the vaccine. And I think they've just spooked themselves. Another thing about the, these NFL players, you know, you had the occasional knucklehead, you know, drives while drunk or abuses his girlfriend or whatever. But otherwise, these are extremely like highly disciplined people that ha- have to be totally focused on being the top of their game to, to stay in this league. So, Jim, I'll, I'll put to you the question I asked Charlie. Is, is there anything wrong with the NFL? Does this tell us anything about the NFL? There are a lot of people saying, wow, look, it took them an hour to cancel the game last night. Yeah, I don't feel guilt over watching the NFL. I feel misery from being a Jets fan, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> um, but yeah, the recognition that players I remember growing up with, you know, the legendary 85 Bears and guys like that who have had serious issues, Junior Seau with the Chargers, uh, mm-hmm. generally believed to be uh, a consequence of repeated head trauma from concussions. Yeah, Ke- Kenny um, Stabler. I, I was looking yeah. him up the other day because I, I wanted to make a reference to uh, Malik Willis, the Titans quarterback, winning a game. You know, after completing like three passes, and Stabler won a game, uh, completing one pass. And, but I looked him up on Wikipedia. Had this horrible end with CTE. You know, and he he was this uh, you know renegade, swashbuckling player that that everyone loved. And but there was a huge price that yeah, that he human paid beings are just not built to have repeated concussions in a short period of time. And so it kind of represents this this gamble. You know, do you want to spend your twenties? living what most people would think to be a great life, right? You know, a professional athlete, fame and fortune, uh, money, adoration, I'm sure women, you know, the, the good life. And do you want in your 40s, 50s and beyond to be plagued with everything from headaches to memory loss to even much more severe brain issues? There are a lot of young men in this world who will take that choice. There are a lot of young men who will look at that and say, out of all the things that I can do with my life, that's the you know that's the most of how I can get what I want. You know I'm not going to go off and invent Microsoft. I'm not going to go off and do you know I'm not going to Harvard Med School. This is what I can do to achieve greatness and do what I want to do with my life. So I feel like almost everyone involved is making an informed choice. The league has made various steps to minimize head injuries. There have been improvements in technology, things like that. Um, I don't feel that much guilt. I think the players know what they're doing. And I think there's also for most of these players, like this is what gives their life meaning. This is mm-hmm. what gives you know, like this is this is this is very look, look at Tom Brady. Brady. Look at Tom Brady. He could walk away with, you know, yeah. millions and millions, be famous, you know, doing all what sorts of things. They can't give it up. And and I just watched the the highlights of, of the Buccaneers game from Sunday. And as far as I could tell, he dropped like three dimes for, for like long touchdowns, you know, and uh that guy's incredible. This yeah, and if the rumors are true, Giselle said it's me or football. And he chose football. <laughs> that's just, in like, the this human is condition. The core of who he is. This is the core of what many people are. And I don't want to sound too lofty because I do understand that it's a game. But throughout history, people, especially young men, have sought out danger and excitement mm-hmm. and achievement. Whether mm-hmm. that's Columbus getting on that boat or Neil Armstrong mm-hmm. nearly dying a hundred times long before he ever got into the space program, flying experimental aircraft. This is 
what young men often choose to do, the, the incentives are there. But the incentives were not there 120 years ago when football came under scrutiny because people were getting injured and dying at a relatively high rate. If you read John Miller's book on the history of football, you will read all about young men, many of whom had great prospects. They were at Harvard or Yale. They came from aristocratic families who nevertheless were desperate to play a game that was far more dangerous then than it is now, that had mm-hmm. far less protection, no head protection really, a little padding, and uh, were not remunerated for it at all. They wouldn't uh, get million-dollar contracts or sports cars or women in champagne and nightclubs. They just played it because they wanted to. And I don't think that's changed. Mm-hmm. I understand the incentive structure's changed a little bit. But the instinct that is in the young men who play these sorts of sports has been there since the beginning of time. And mm-hmm. I cannot feel guilty for sharing in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. The, the, the incident I always go back to that illustrates this is I uh, was, was on a trip in, in Iraq um, uh, after the, the surge had kind of pacified most of the country and with a couple other journalists. And we were in a, a Bradley fighting vehicle with these guys uh, on, a, on a patrol. And they're kind of half asleep in this, this vehicle. This area had been like really hot and dangerous for a long time. And now nothing was happening, happening there. And we asked them, you know, how is it? How are you guys enjoying it? This you know, must be great. Nothing's going on. They're like, it sucks. We're bored. <laughs> you know, nothing's happening. So they, they, those guys signed up to have the the uh, to take the risk to have the what they considered the the adventure, and, th- and that's that's just uh, uh, an an element of, of of human nature. We're never getting beyond MBD. Exit question to you: The NFL will only get bigger than ever. Yes or no? Uh, yes, for the foreseeable future, Jim. Yeah, yeah, nothing, you know, there have been talks about the NFL had peaked for quite a few years now, and it has yet to occur. Charlie? The NFL is going to get more popular, not less, and so is college football. Yeah, talking about peak NFL is like talking about peak Trump sometime in late 2015. So with that, let's pause. I'll do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our increasingly extensive metered paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see... About 90% fewer ads. Certainly the most obnoxious and annoying ads will disappear for you your way to get deeper into the NR community, to comment on articles and blog posts, to be part of our private Facebook group, to get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So a great deal all around, and most importantly, a way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already an NR Plus member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow NR readers as a member of NR Plus today, or even tomorrow. I'm not going to be picky about the timing. So Charlie, news over the holidays, Title 42, there's been this ongoing legal drama where you have the states suing to preserve it. You have the ACLU and and others suing to get rid of it. You have the Biden administration just playing a game where it basically wants it to go away, but doesn't want to have direct responsibility for itself. This landed uh, with the Supreme Court and you had a majority saying, well, we're not going to let it go away for the next couple of months. You had Gorsuch siding with the minority and taking some brickbats from the right what do you make of it? Well, what I make of it is that this was a legal case, not a decision made by Congress or by the president. The reason that this issue has gone to the court so many times is that the political branches aren't doing their jobs. But when evaluating the judicial role that results from that abdication, it's imperative to remember that judges are not and are not supposed to be politicians. The question before the court in this case was not, hey, what about immigration policy? The question was not, should we or should we not enforce the border? 
The question was not how many immigrants should come in and under what terms. The question was whether or not a fairly old statute to do with communicable diseases was applicable in late 2022 and henceforth. The case, as I understand it, did not, in a direct sense, reach the merits. There were a bunch of esoteric procedural questions involved as well. But this did not stop many observers from treating the various judges as if they were senators, which they're not. I read the decision, and I think that Justice Gorsuch's position is absolutely defensible. In fact, Gorsuch says himself, this court is not a last gasp policy shop. This court exists to interpret and uphold the law. Ultimately, this is going to come down to one's statutory interpretation and one's view of at what point and in what way the courts should take cases. But it cannot be a debate over the underlying policy. And unfortunately, it's become one. And the sad part of that is that that habit is being encouraged by the elected branches. As you said, President Biden has argued in court that uh, the student loan order that he put out is necessary because we still have a COVID emergency. But in this case, wants to get rid of a provision that was invoked by the existence of the same emergency. And on the other side, you have members of the House Freedom Caucus who have been vocal and I think correct, in arguing that the COVID emergency is over, publicly demanding that the president keep Title 42 in place on the grounds that there is an emergency that in every other scenario they reject. This is not how the government is supposed to work. Uh, it's not how statesmen are supposed to behave. But we cannot blame the Supreme Court for its uh, response uh, which is unfortunately inevitable when everyone else runs away. So MBD, just following up from the last point of Charlie's answer there, this is just, it's not how the, a government should work. One, Title 42, the idea that we, we need to re re rely on an edict from the CDC to enforce or at least partially enforce our border, you know, whether there's a pandemic or not, is insane. The the idea that uh, you know you you can't you can't know whether the uh, it, the, uh, the courts have to decide you know what the policy is going to be because of you know the the Administrative Procedures Act and you know you can't you uh, you can't can't repeal it because you're not abiding by the Administrative Procedures Act and then then we have this complicated question of whether it can go away or not because the states are trying to appeal the 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 other case it's just it's 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 a, it's a total mess and it's a it's a disgrace and it shows how far our system has gotten um, beyond the founders design and basic rationality well i mean can we blame the democrats in the white house i mean the I've talked on this podcast and in, in columns before about how when Democrats are in the White House, they don't have border control. They practice Republican control, which is like, oh, well, we're, yeah, we're enforcing the border where, you know, Obama redefines what deportation is in order to juice the stats and make it look like he's tough on the border. Uh, and that's all aimed at, at uh, not at p putting law and order at our border, but at tamping down populist uh, anger that we don't have a border. Uh, you know, the White House has been backed into a corner ideologically by the most extreme uh, immigrant rights activists to basically saying that, like, there is, there is no good reason to enforce the border except public health, right? Everything else is white supremacy, Mm -hmm. if you say that you have national sovereignty, if you have control of your borders, well, these are non-white immigrants by the most part, although not all. I mean, <laughs> people are reporting that Russians are showing up 
on our southern border. Uh, at this point, people from Ukraine are showing up on our southern border because uh, they know this is a way to get in. Um, but this is the only thing that they've been able to find as a Trump as a Trump card in the last two years. Is so, oh well, well if, if we uh, if we use public health, we can kind of abate the crisis at the border by about fifty percent. Where you know they're turning it roughly half the number away. I mean, they're going to have to find it in themselves to enforce the law because it's the law and enforce our border because it's the border because the, the, the numbers are absolutely staggering. I mean, I think uh, El Paso city manager said two weeks ago that they're at 2,500 migrants crossing the border daily. That's 900,000 a year in El Paso alone. Uh, DHS put out an estimate that once Title 42 is lifted, they're estimating between 9,000 to 14,000 migrants crossing the border daily. That's a 3.3 million per year estimate. I mean, these numbers are absolutely staggering. And the Biden administration has itself to blame um, because they are the ones who said, we're going to do this completely differently from Trump somehow. And that message got down the line and people's behavior has been uh, affected by that. You know, the only way to, to stop this is by enforcing the law and doing it long enough that people get the message that you can't just walk into the United States. So, Jim Garrity, I'm just going to go straight ask a question to you on this and, and pick up with you first on the next topic, because I know this is not your favorite. Uh, you haven't followed this one closely, but the pandemic is over, done with, such that everyone should recognize it now, yes or no? Well, even though I didn't follow this, yeah, first of all, yes, the pandemic is over. And I think there's been a certain muddiness in conservative thinking that most conservatives believe the pandemic is over and thought it was kind of ridiculous when the Biden administration would, Biden would go on 60 Minutes and say the pandemic is over and then turn around and use the pandemic to justify things like the student loan decision. Right? Um, if we think the pandemic is over, well, we shouldn't keep Title 42 in place because we want it there even though the pandemic's over. If the pandemic's over, then the policies related to the pandemic should end. There's that. And the second thing is we spent, what, a generation, two generations complaining about judges that legislate from the bench? If you do that, you can't turn around and say, okay, Supreme Court, please fix our immigration policy. You can only do that through the legislature, through the executive branch. And you know we're not going to get a chance to do that for another two years. It's a very bad situation, but elections have consequences. Charlie Cook. What's the question? Pandemic over. Oh, the pandemic's over. Absolutely. The Biden administration is holding on to the pandemic because especially now with a Congress that is split between a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, the maintenance of an emergency status accords the executive branch powers that it cannot expect from the legislature. The Washington yeah. Post has come out and said this over and over again, that if the pandemic ends, all of these terrible things will happen. Medicaid reimbursement rates will change, and the argument for student loan forgiveness, reach transference, will disappear. The Biden administration is thrilled by the emergency. Of course, it doesn't want it politically because the country has moved on, and so it has entered into this peculiar twilight zone in which it will say that the pandemic is over in an amorphous cosmic sense, but legally insists that yeah. it is still it's, with us. It's one thing to have emergency powers during an emergency, but to have emergency powers during a clear non-emergency is, is, is what we're looking at now. MBD. Pandemic yeah. Up. Uh, yeah, not in China, though, apparently. I mean, they're, yeah. they're letting it run, one, run wild now, finally. Um yeah, over here it's over, long over. It's 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 over, and it's a travesty if it's not recognized as such in in all uh, respects. So Jim Garrity, as promised, coming to you first. So it turns out that Donald Trump uh, was was undone by pro-lifers who got what they wanted, uh, overturning a row, and then just disappeared. And whereas Trump had a record of I don't know what was it. Two two thirty to twenty, or whatever he keeps the the, the score. Pro lifers uh, are responsible for for all other 
losses and for the disappointment of the midterms. When Donald Trump chose to run for president in 2015, and he said he was pro-life, he had described himself as pro-choice in previous books and such. Uh, he gave this, people said, well, how, what may change your mind? And he gave the story of, you know, I had this friend who had this lovely person, this the lovely child, and the child turned out to be great. They've been thinking of aborting it. You know. And it was this, uh, okay, I guess, kind of, you know, it, it seemed a little, <laughs> I, I, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it. There was, this, a little, there was good reasons to be wary of Donald it was, Trump. It was, Mitt, Mitt Romney, though, was like studying zygotes that, that changed his mind. Um, there was good reason to be wary of Donald Trump as a pro-life president. And then he appointed three justices who ended up overturning Roe versus Wade, in addition to all of the lower court justices and all the other uh, policy decisions he made during his presidency that pushed America in a pro-life direction. And it was a pleasant surprise for pro-lifers. Maybe the best thing to come out of the Trump presidency. And yet there was this interesting question of, did Trump do it because he genuinely believed it in his heart and he genuinely bought into this or because he it was the politically pragmatic thing to do, that he could not be a Republican nominee, he could not be a Republican president without being pro-life. I think what we saw today is how much this was political calculation. I'm glad Trump did it. I'm glad Trump the policy moved in the direction it did. But uh, that seeing that wariness, that nagging voice in the back of your thread of thing, this uh, back of your head saying this is an act. He's doing it because he has to. He doesn't really believe this stuff. His latest rant on Truth Social further indicates this was all a matter of political positioning. Deep in his gut, Donald Trump doesn't believe in much of anything beyond himself. Yeah, MBD, it just goes to what a minor miracle it was that uh, this guy was such a rock on everything that mattered to pro-lifers during his administration, even though everything prior to his getting elected president would have indicated no, and, and everything he's done since. He, he was notably si silent after Dobbs came down. No, I mean, it's... Um I, I mean, I think he probably even re maybe regrets it to some degree. I mean, it is notable. He delivered far more for pro-lifers than he did for immigration hawks, right? I mean, like, he got, he, he knocked down Roe v. Wade, a 50-year project. Uh, he couldn't build a wall on the border, mm -hmm. which was like a, a five-year project from when he, mm -hmm. you know, from the time he announced it to the time it would take to get it done if you could have gotten Congress behind the effort. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing to think that they had they had majorities in both houses, and the a border wall is basically popular, and and they couldn't fund it. Yeah, and and remember, like and I mean, at the very beginning of the campaign, it. you know, he was being attacked by Ted Cruz for having New York values, right? Like for, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't want New York values, which was a code word for, um, actually, it was Donald Trump's own code word from, I don't know, in nineteen ninety nine about why he was pro choice. Um, but he, he delivered and not only did he deliver, but I mean, he was arguably the most effective advocate for life as a presidential candidate, the Republican party ever produced, um, because he, in a way he'd like not, uh, internalized Frank Luncian babble talk about appealing to the middle and instead went right for the gut and talked about how disgusting abortion is. Uh, in graphic terms. So I, I, you know, his legacy is very mixed on this. I mean, it's, I, I agree with, um, we have an analysis on our site by Ramesh Panuru, you know, showing, I think pretty effectively that if you look at the races, close ties to Donald Trump seem to cost candidates more than, um, a tough pro-life position did. Um, and there's no way getting around that. So Charlie and Susan B. Anthony uh, put out a, a statement saying, you know, the, the thing to the where pro-lifers should be is is uh, endorsing ambitious but popular pro-life positions, and then shooting at the extremism of the other time, other side. And we look forward to Mr. Trump uh, doing this as well as all other presidential candidates in 2024. And Mike Pence in, endorsed this. Uh, tweet on Twitter, which just shows that this is uh, another vulnerability that Trump has created him for himself, and he's done a lot of those, done a lot of this over the last ninety days. I think that it demonstrates once again why the idea that you hear from diehard Trumpists that Republicans, including potential Republican candidates, owe Trump their this is their word loyalty 
is so silly. This is not a medieval court. We live as we should in a free republic in which our relationship with politicians should be transactional. There is no point, and I've never understood why people who are nominally on the right do this. There is no point in pretending that Donald Trump did not deliver for the pro-life cause or for the originalist cause. He did. He could be the worst person who ever lived, and that would be true. He could stage eight, nine, ten coups, and that would be true. It is a fact. But that, not some abstract medieval concept of loyalty, is why voters stuck with him, and many of them held their noses to do so. And if he has now abandoned this position, if he is now less attached to it, less committed, then voters should take that into account. A lot of people who are pro-life decided to go with Donald Trump because they thought that on balance he would help them out, and he did. And now he's sounding pretty disappointing. Now he's assigning blame where I think it does not belong. So those voters should move on. They should say, thank you for what you did, which can't be changed. It's a historical fact. But we're now going to go in a different direction. That's politics. That's how politics should work. If you take the Trumpian approach that everyone, including Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and Glenn Youngkin, should be loyal to Trump, then you would be stuck with whatever Trump decides to do at any given point. And that would be not only ridiculous, but it would fly in the face of why it was that despite being such an obvious lunatic, Trump managed to keep together a coalition for as long as he did. So MBD, let's take the issue of life and human dignity to a much higher non-political plane. Pope Benedict passed away last several days. You've, You've written about this on the website. What should we make of him and his legacy? Uh, so it's interesting. I've, I've changed my mind on Pope Benedict in the years since he retired. Um, when he, he became the first Pope in 600 years to retire the office, which was itself a historic thing. And I think will set a precedent for popes to do so before they become incapacitated. Um, and I remember I, I initially, viewed him as sort of someone whose project was totally unfinished when he retired, that his um, project of returning the Catholic church uh, to its basics, to its traditions um, after the, the kind of ferment of the 1960s and seventies had failed because he'd passed it on to Francis who kind of revived and reopened all the questions that John Paul II and Benedict XVI had assured everyone were closed. Um, I no longer think that in light of his death. I think um, his total accomplishments as a theologian, dating back to the late 60s, through his papacy, through the books, particularly Jesus of Nazareth, um, are so titanic in their achievement, so overwhelming in their unchallengeable merit that uh, the Francis pontificate has already been surpassed by the legacy Benedict leaves behind um, as the most uh, accomplished intellect to, uh, to enter the papacy in at least a thousand years since innocent, the second, maybe ever. Um, and I think, uh, if you look at his last will and, or his last spiritual Testament, which the Vatican released, he said that he's struck by, uh, how throughout his lifetime, there are these successive paradigms, uh, that attack theology, uh, from within whether it was an existentialist lens, a Marxist lens, and how he's, his 
the great gift of his life was in a sense, watching these all come into view and then all be defeated by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that legacy is, um, I just think he's, he's probably one of the great men of the 20th century and, um, that the, the passing fads of the day are going to appear as nothing compared to his legacy in, you know, 50 years or a hundred years, people will look back on him and be like, my God, those people lived at this time of Pope Benedict the 16th, the way we look back at Queen Victoria. Hmm. All right. Well, that's a, a hard answer to follow Jim, but uh, you're, you're going to do it. And I'm going to bring <laughs> us back down a couple pegs back to politics. So y- your guess, this, this is a very speculative question, but your, your guess is the 2024 Republican nominee will endorse something like the Lindsey Graham bill of a federal prohibition at uh, a certain point of time on abortions or will uh, say no this is just just for states to decide will not endorse um but i believe that you know the odds are likely that this will be you know there's a good chance if it's not trump it's ron DeSantis, and DeSantis will have his own florida state policies he'll be able to point to to say i think states They'll emphasize it should remain a state's issue, and they should say states should emulate what I did in my state. Uh, and that will be kind of the default position of the Republican nominee. So, so you don't think DeSantis will endorse any federal? I don't think so, no. Charlie? Ooh, I don't know. I know what I want the federal government to do, which is nothing, because it has no authority in this area and should respect its limits on both sides. I think that it will not. I think that conservatives have not responded particularly well to Roe being overturned and are spooked. So they'll leave the area alone nationally for the wrong reasons. Okay, so state state level. So we have two two state levels on the board to UMBD. Um. I think eventually they're going to try to do a, a, a federal level um, floor for abortion regulation, um, and maybe maybe it won't be the Graham bill, but uh, maybe it'll be more tightly focused on late term uh, mm-hmm. abortions. But I think they will try to do a floor at some point. And I mean, I might agree with Charlie in, theoretically. But, you know, while the federal government still has 80 FBI agents uh, spending all their days on Twitter, um, the federal government is large enough to pass something like this. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to endorse some sort of federal measure. But I think DeSantis will have the political chops to resist it and probably will. So I think if Trump or DeSantis is the nominee, the answer is no. There won't be uh, the position of the nominee will not be in, in favor of federal action. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you had the kids staying up to midnight to ring in the new year. Yeah, my uh, my daughter uh, has some friends and at her dance school, uh, and one of the moms threw a party. And um, so we went with my two oldest kids, and they managed to stay up the whole night, and the party was full of games that the kids could play. Uh, kids kind of a all ages and they really got into it really kind of drunk in the uh, adrenaline of staying up several hours past bedtime. Um, <laughs> I didn't stay up till midnight. No, kids I, are cool. I know. I mean, well, I, I gotta be honest, like since my kids were born, I mean, I, I haven't stayed up to midnight until this, <laughs> this year. Um, but they did it and they were thrilled to do it. And we got a nice good sleep in the following day and managed to get them out the door for um, school this week. So we're batting a thousand. Speaking of that, Jim Garrity, you, you are uh, feeling blessed to have the kids back in school. Yes. Once again, just as like I did when the kitchen was complete listeners, I invite you to listen to the sounds of my home in authenticity woods. You hear that? That's nothing. That's the sound of nothing because I am alone in the house. Look, I love my kids. I love my wife. 
it was a lot of fun to have around the holidays. But at least here in Authenticity Woods, holiday break, because we can't call it Christmas break, is 17 days. I seem to remember when I was a kid, I thought it was about a week, you know, and a weekend on either end. So 17 days, we had a lot of fun. We did snow tubing. We did ice skating. We did walks in the local parks. But it's hard to find something to do with two kids for 17 straight days. We did a lot more screen time than we like to, particularly during the frigid (laughs) days at the beginning of the break. But hey, you know what? What are you going to do unless you're going away and traveling? You know, and you're, you know, some of us are trying to have some work done around the holiday time. 17 days. So now things are back to normal. And now I just have to worry about Authenticity Woods School District deciding to be snowflakes about literal snowflakes, because if the dew point gets too low, we cancel school. <laughs> so, Charlie, you are a unqualified thumbs up for Puss, the movie Puss in Boots. Ah, I liked it. I didn't think I was going to 20 minutes in. It struck me as a dud 20 minutes in. But it then turned around and was really fun. I've taken to taking the kids to see movies. They love the size of the screen and the volume and mm. the fact that the popcorn and the popcorn, and the fact the whole place shakes. And I quite like it too because there were two or three years where we couldn't do it and or didn't do it. And um, not because of COVID, but because they were too small. And uh, yeah, Puss in Boots gets a thumbs up from me. It was it was sort of funny and and interesting and well done and visually spectacular. So I wrote a piece about Yellowstone. I was just kind of I- interested what uh, uh, what the show uh, is about. There's been um, a lot of coverage of it as a smash hit. It's the most popular scripted show on television. There are a lot of critics who say it's uh, it's about whiteness and about white grievance. And one reason I don't stream anything is just it takes so long. I think the fir- first season of Yellowstone, something like 10 hours, but I put it on my phone uh, and, you know, watch while I was doing the dishes or working out a little bit or just walking from one place to the other in the house. And lo and behold, after three or four days, I, I'd watched the whole, whole season. And I recommend it to people if you haven't watched it. It is, it is quite good. It hasn't gotten the critical acclaim it deserves in, in part because it doesn't bend to a progressive pieties, but it is uh, quite well done. I also want to mention, I set up a special editor's podcast email a while ago and never got around to mentioning it. So I want to do that now. It's editorspod at nashreview.com. So if you have any comments, any questions, you want to propose exit questions that I should put to the group, you want to send pictures of your uh, encounters with raptors, hawks, and owls, please email us at editorspod at nationalreview.com. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Maddie Kearns on Scotland's contemptible gender reform bill. Um, uh, Scotland, with its devolved parliament, passed an absolutely regressive uh, law on changing your gender legally that um, Maddie flays in this uh, piece and that the UK government should uh, challenge itself. Jim Gearty. I don't know if I've selected James Lilac's pieces yet. And today he has one called 2023, the mystery flavor era. And he talks about how clearly, as we alluded to earlier, we're not in the pandemic era anymore. Life is very different than it was in 2020, but we're not quite in that pre-pandemic state of normal either. And it just is this little anecdote about going to the bank uh, and how the number of tellers is different, the number of employees is different, the number of people on the streets is different, and we're not quite where we were. Now, maybe some of this is you know, particularly egregious up in Minnesota, but it just has this nagging sense that we're not where we ought to be and that something's not quite right. And uh, as usual, it's very funny, very insightful, and in everything we've come to expect from James Hilux. Charlie? I'm going to pick The Enduring Relevance of Fusionism by Rachel Liu, which, of course, I'm picking because I agree with it, because that's my approach as well. As I wrote a book proposing fusionism, as the future as well as the past of conservatism. But I think it's absolutely worth reading. And I think, naturally, Rachel Liu is correct to say that conservatives need the same groups they always did. 
So my pick is the aforementioned post by Ramesh dissecting in the way only Ramesh can dissect Trump's truth social post about abortion. If you want a uh, 400 word take that uh, tells you everything you need to know about this, you cannot do any better than Ramesh's post. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to ExpressVPN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.